This morning we continue our sermon series on the Old Testament prophet Micah, a man who ministered roughly between 740 and 700 B.C. and brought a lot of bad news to the people of God in response to their unfaithfulness, in response to their rejection of His promises of blessing. Yet we have said, these are the cycles within Micah, in the midst of gloom, He brings glimpses of glory. Judgment is coming, no doubt about it. The people of God will lose their homeland. They will be exiled to a foreign place, Assyria and then Babylon. But God, chapter 5, promises a new king to be ruler over Israel. His origins are from ancient times. He will be born in Bethlehem, the hometown of David, the king. He'll be a descendant of David. And chapter 5, verse 5 says, He will be our peace, our shalom. He will make possible the repairing and restoring of the fabric of the world, everything that has gone wrong that is no longer the way it's supposed to be. And that brings us to chapter 6, reading this morning the first eight verses. Listen carefully. These are God's words. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against His people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you and also Aaron and Miriam, my people. Remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Baor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Speak freshly, O Lord, through your Holy Spirit, who inspired Micah, who carried him along, who gave him a vision of the future. Do the same, Lord, in us today with greater clarity because you've revealed more. You've sent the one who is our shalom. He has come, the Prince of Peace, and let us exalt his name all the more and bow down before the King. Amen. We start with a a heartfelt indictment. Micah's bad news here in verses 1 and 2 uses legal language. He says he's going to plead his case. He has an accusation, verse 2. He has a case against his people. He's lodging a charge. And we should be thinking, oh boy, here it comes. 
like when your mama uses your middle name. <laughs> I think that's a lost art. Matthew Tyler Wong, come here. Or, or that look, or that tone, I don't think that's been lost in the new generation where you know it's about to come. Wait for it. But instead of bringing down the hammer, the Lord asks two questions. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. God gives His own answer to those questions with just a few reminders of His never-failing, gracious, and merciful love. His, and His compassion is, is even evident in the first words, my people. As the district attorney bringing the indictment, he could easily have said, traitor, guilty of capital offenses against the king. He could easily have said generically, prisoner 24601, hear these charges. But he says with intimacy and tenderness, my people, grace in the midst of judgment, my people. And here are the few examples of his faithful love towards Israel. Verse 4, he says, I redeemed you from slavery to Egypt, deliverance and rescue. I, I gave you a leader to lead you out and then through the wilderness. They had spiritual shepherding. My people, verse 5, remember what Balak, king of Boab, did. He hired Balaam, who rode on that donkey, that smart donkey. And Balak wanted Balaam to curse Israel. Balaam was the prophet. But Balaam could only do what God directed him to do, and God turned his words around and caused him to bless Israel. So not only did he bring deliverance to his people and give them leadership out of Egypt through the wilderness, but he defends his people, and he turns evil into good. And then he says, remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, at the end of verse 5. Shittim was a, a town on the east side of the Jordan River in the wilderness, Gilgal was a town on the west side of the Jordan River inside the Promised Land, and so it was outside in, but this was not merely a geography lesson, which town is outside and which town is in, because Shittim from Numbers chapter 25 was infamous among the people of God who would always remember that that's when they committed covenant unfaithfulness. Through their sexual immorality that led to false worship, they rejected the promises of God. They were still in the wilderness. They were still being supplied heavenly bread, manna from heaven, water from a rock, quail, meat to eat. In the midst of all that gracious, tender care for, um, from God for His people, they turn away at Shittim and indulge in sin and idolatry. At Gilgal, the other town, inside the promised land, that was the first stop after they entered the promised land under Joshua's leadership, Joshua chapter 5. And later on in 1 Samuel 11, that's when the covenant is renewed. And so, Shittim, covenant broken. Gilgal, covenant renewed. God's saying, do you see how I brought you from unfaithfulness and rebellion to faithfulness as my people? God doesn't just deliver and rescue. He doesn't just provide spiritual shepherding. He doesn't just defend and vindicate and turn evil into good. Instead of bringing justice in judgment earlier, which would have been His right, which would have been what Israel deserved, 
he was merciful and compassionate in renewing his people. These reminders are all part of how verse 5 ends, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Righteous acts flows out of the, the righteousness of God, very much related to the justice of God, that the, the right behavior, the setting right of everything that is wrong. And what, verse, what verses four and five, are, are, three, four, and five are saying here from the mouth of the Lord is this, I have set right, I have restored the condition of you, my oppressed people. How have you responded to me? Micah asked that question, verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? How, how do we respond to this kind of generous grace and compassion on the part of God? What, what, what kind of gift do you give a king? How do you please him? With lots of sacrifices? Each example Micah provides is increasingly more extravagant. First, calves. I, I want to say just calves, but here it's a, um, a burnt offering of a calf a year old. Think tender veal. Think choice Christmas dinner. And a burnt offering didn't let you take anything home. It was all burned up, gone. Give the whole extravagant gift to God. That's just where it starts. Shall I offer a, a calf a year old? Or even more, uh, would, would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? Is, is that how much you need to give a God who has provided for His people that generously? Or 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Not even a, a unit of measure that's possible to be counted the impact of which on the, the family or, or the economy. And then the most extravagant, perhaps outrageous idea of all. Mike is not suggesting this. He's asking a rhetorical question. Is, is this what it takes? The sacrifice of my firstborn child? Is that what it is required to honor the, the Lord who has done such a thing for His people? The obvious but unspoken answer, never. Completely wrong path, wrong way of thinking. What Micah says instead is this, verse 8, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. That's how. That first phrase is literally, do justice, or make justice. We don't worship by sacrificing animals, right? Um, what religious things do we present God with, sometimes with less than pure motives, thinking that this is an acceptable sacrifice? Maybe part of it is just coming to church on Sunday mornings rather than doing something else giving generously, serving, praying before meals, reading the Bible, studying solid theology, all good things, but Micah tells us that there is something shallow, there's something missing if that Godward focus fails 
to spill over into love of neighbor, especially justice for the vulnerable. God says, I don't want your religion. We read this over and over in the prophets. I'm tired of the bleeding of rams, the the mooing of cows, we might say. God says here, I want you to do justice. That's where we go secondly. And you ask a question, is this a way to measure faith? Some of you are allergic to the term social justice. What I want to plead this morning is that you set aside the ministers and the messages and the mottos and the movements that come to mind some of which very well may be imbalanced and unhealthy, a few of which may even be dangerous spiritually because they might look enough like the gospel of Jesus Christ and core biblical Christianity, but they twist something central. I want to ask you to set aside any such ideas because this morning I'm not talking about them. I don't have any movement or figure leading a movement in mind at all All I'm interested in is looking at the Bible with you and seeing what God has to say about justice. And it's not going to be hard to find. It's all over the place. The word for justice in the Hebrew language of the Old Testament is mishpat, mishpat. It means more than punishment for wrong. It means that, but it means more than that. It means also it describes working towards everything that is right. That's the positive side of the coin. Not just punishment of wrong, but working towards everything that is right, cultivating life as it's supposed to be. It's, it's very much connected to this idea of shalom, which is more than peace, right? It's, it's what God designed in the harmony of creation and relationships. Um, so, here, here are a couple examples. Um, justice is used in the Old Testament to describe how people should be treated equitably, fairly. Leviticus 24 says, you are to have the same law for the foreigner and the native-born. And this is not just an add-on sentence. I am the Lord your God. That's why. (laughs) What does he mean? That's his character. That's how he treats people. That's why you should do the same. Mishpat also describes giving people what they're due, D-U-E. Deuteronomy chapter 18 has this instruction for the people of God to support the priests who are working in the temple with their offerings, with their tithes, if you will, so that the priests can focus on leading worship at the temple. And this is what Deuteronomy chapter 18 says. It, it, it says, this, is, this part of your offering is the priest's mishpat. It's their justice. Our translations put it, it's the priest's share. It's an absolutely accurate translation, but very literally, it's what is right. Their due, their divine mishpat justice. Again, this goes hand in hand with the idea of shalom, life as it's supposed to be, who says, according to the perfect wisdom of the one who created all things. That's who says. That's who defines justice and shalom. When mishpat shows up in the Old Testament, this idea of justice, in just about every instance of mishpat, it's mentioned in the context of what has been called, you've heard this from me before, the quartet of the vulnerable. 
four classes of people always show up when mishpat is mentioned in the Old Testament. One or more, often more, uh, uh, multiple ones of the four. The poor, widows, orphans, and foreigners. That's the quartet of the vulnerable that show up over and over and over. I think it's reasonable to say that today those categories could be easily expanded to also include the homeless and single-parent families and refugees. You might argue to add a few more. The clear and consistent message from the Old Testament, the fact that mishpat is almost always associated with one or more of these vulnerable classes, the message is consistent. Justice that reflects who God is, how He demonstrates His heart is imitated, is reflected by His people when we treat the vulnerable, the oppressed, the powerless with justice, when we give them their due. Understanding God's just ways through faith in Him, that's the vertical, it always flows out of God's people in the way we treat one another justly, the horizontal. That's where we arrive at what I would argue is a completely biblical phrase, social justice. Divine justice, social justice. We take from God, we receive, we honor Him, we overflow it to our fellow man. What's the problem with social justice in our world? The reason why some people are allergic to it, and I get it. I understand some of those reactions. Too often with social justice, it becomes the gospel. This happened early on in the 20th century in our country here. Um, liberalism and fundamentalism were two strands of American Christianity, and liberalism went off the rails in merely believing that doing good was the gospel. And they set aside proclaiming the message that the King has come and that through faith in His life, death, and resurrection, you can be forgiven of sin and set free eternally. The, uh, too often, social justice is a favorite cause of the left. When it takes certain social and political stances and says, you can't be a Christian unless you agree with us, unless you take these actions, unless you look like this picture. But that also happens on the right. When folks, churches, leaders, activists, authors say, the Christian way to vote and the Christian way to solve the social challenges of our day is only this. Jesus was neither Democrat nor Republican. Too often, social justice represents the saying that Francis of Assisi never said, preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. He never said that. I've heard that in three different sermons over my years myself. He never said that. Uh, even an article in the Huffington Post would say, Francis of Assisi never said that. What did he say? He did say that your behavior should be consistent with what you believe and what you say. And can we say amen to that? That's, that's easy. Absolutely. Let's, be, let's have integrity 
between what we believe and how we act. And so, if God's Word consistently and specifically commands us to do justice, then we cannot ignore social and physical needs all around us while we preach an only spiritual gospel. That's not biblical Christianity. That's not what honors God. God doesn't want your merely religious offerings, nor does He want your sterile-in-a-bottle pure doctrine. He wants you to walk humbly with your God. How do you do that? By doing justice and loving mercy. James chapter 2 in the New Testament tells us that faith without deeds is dead. So, let's believe in Jesus and proclaim Him boldly while at the same time we demonstrate His just character by defending the vulnerable and the oppressed and the powerless. Take a look at Isaiah chapter 1. In verse 11, Isaiah writes this, the multitude, this is the Lord speaking, the multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the bull, blood of bulls and lambs and goats. There's that message I was referring to, all over the Old Testament prophets. I don't need any more of your religion. And then down in verses 15 uh, and following, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Sorry, I put on another translation. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless, the orphan. Plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Do you detect the elements of the quartet of the vulnerable? I don't want your religion. I want you to do justice. God's not saying don't worship, don't do religious things, don't honor God in the activities of your life. He's not saying that. He's saying don't merely do that. Do this also. <clears throat> and I included verse 18 on purpose because we love to jump to Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. It's a picture of forgiveness of sin that requires blood, substitute, because sin's consequence is death, and blood is a representative of death. You, why did I read that in the context? We love the idea of forgiveness, but we ignore the context that comes right before it. God would say, don't tell me you love forgiveness if you're ignoring the plight of the helpless and the needy and the vulnerable, because the only way there is any forgiveness of sin is because I had compassion on you in your spiritual death, in your vulnerability, in your helplessness, and I brought you justice. I set right everything that was wrong. One more glance at Isaiah later on in his writing, chapter 42. He's describing the Messiah using this phrase, the servant of the Lord. And he says this of the Messiah, 
Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. It's all over the Bible. Not on the margins, at the core. Because Isaiah is saying the Messiah to come, who is Jesus, his mission is all about global mishpat. That's what he'll bring. That's why you and I need to be about it. Tim Keller, in his book, Making Sense of God, writes this. It's sort of mid-paragraph. Most penetrating is the Old Testament's use of social justice as a gauge of a person's true heart faith in God. Wow. What did I call this Second point, a way to measure faith, question mark? I think the Bible would say pretty much. Whoever the vulnerable are in our world, Micah would say to us, on behalf of the Lord, if you believe in and love this justice-working Jesus, then do justice. Make it so. It brings us lastly to justice has been served. Listen again to verse 8. How do we respond to this kind of God? With sacrifices, with religion, with more and more extravagance? Micah says, no. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Walking humbly with your God describes a, a life of faith and an intimate awareness of God's heart, walking with right, like a child with his or her parent, and a desire to obey. It's, it's living consistently according to the heart of God. How do you live like that? If you work backwards, you do justice, and you love mercy. These three parts of that key verse, verse 8, are all connected. Um, think about this. If you're an apprentice in some trade, how do you know after your period of training, how do you know that you're getting it? How do you know that you are ready to strike out on your own and be a master craftsman in your own right? The measures are simple. You demonstrate what you've received. You put into practice what you've learned, what you know, and the source was the master craftsman. And he's taught you everything, and now can you do it? Have you been listening? Have you been walking humbly as, as a learner, as one who does not know, can't figure this out, and needs everything that the master can provide you? You imitate your mentor. In this case, you live like your king who is most perfectly just and merciful. That's how you walk humbly with your God. Justice, or mishpat, we've talked about. It's all over the Old Testament and into the New. Mercy is this special term in the Old Testament that translates the Hebrew word chesed. I can't roll my eyes. I can get my post-nasal drip going, though. Chesed. That's the Hebrew word for, um, that's translated here, mercy, but it's, it's a term that describes the unique covenant love of God for His people. It's also translated loving kindness. Embedded in that is God keeps His promises and He does not give up on us. Chesed. 
Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke connects these two terms when he says this, Mishpat emphasizes the action, do justice. Chesed emphasizes the attitude or motive behind the action. Do justice with mercy, with a faithful, loving heart that does not give up on the vulnerable. The rest of chapter 6, we haven't read it, we won't read it. It lays out evidence uh, behind God's indictment. Judgment is coming because of social injustice. What are the consequences of destroying shalom? God says in the rest of the chapter, you will not taste shalom yourself. Verse 14, just a quick uh, sample. You'll eat, you won't be satisfied. You'll store up, you'll save nothing. Verse 15, you'll plant, you won't harvest anything. You'll crush grapes. That's a time of great revelry in any culture. You won't drink any of that wine. If you're not about cultivating shalom in the world, you won't taste shalom yourself. That's divine justice. As you climb higher, as you achieve greater, as you make a name for yourself, none of it will satisfy. Does that preach here in Bergen County at all? What's the solution to this endless frustration, this vicious cycle, this treadmill of performance and achievement that too many of us can't ever jump off for very long at all? In Deuteronomy chapter 10, God describes, or Moses describes God as one who defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner. And you are to love those who are foreigners. Why do we need to do that? Well, first of all, because God does. But secondly, He gives you the answer. Because you yourselves, Israel, were foreigners in Egypt. It's like saying you should help the poor. Why? Don't you remember sleeping overnight for two years of your life on the streets of Manhattan, struggling to survive? How could you not help the poor? And if you haven't had that experience in your life, economically and socially, you have had or you're still having that experience spiritually. When uh, the, the analogy is this, when, when Micah tells us to do justice, and we ask the question, why? The answer, has a sim- uh, the, the, the answer for us is, is very analogous to this, because you know. The answer for the follower of Jesus is this, because if you've trusted in Christ, justice has been paid, but it was poured out upon Jesus, and you've been set free. You've been forgiven. You of all people the Lord saying through Micah, should get this. Because justice, judgment, the wrath of God due upon sin has not come upon you as the most vulnerable in your sin, as powerless to do anything about it. How can you not help those around you in the same vein that God has demonstrated to you? Jesus accepted the judgment your sin deserved in order to give you, to set right everything that was wrong with you, in order to bring you shalom, peace, but much more than that, intimacy with God, life as it was always intended to be.
if you don't work for this shalom and this justice, Micah would say, you're not walking humbly with your God. Maybe you don't think the oppressed, the poor, the homeless, the refugee, the immigrant, maybe you don't think they deserve what you've earned because you've lived life the right way. You've abided by law. You've come to church. You're a believer. All of that dangerously can become self-justification. All of that can lead to an attitude of, I've done the right thing, elder brother in the prodigal son. I've always obeyed. And, and the, the sign, the indicator is when suffering or trials come, when you turn away, when you distance yourself from God, when you, when you think He hasn't upheld His end of the bargain. How can you act like this? When I've done everything right, you owe me are the words that might not ever come out of your mouth, but often are resident in your heart. God's Word through Micah, who points ahead to the Prince of Peace born in Bethlehem, can free you if you admit and believe, I do deserve justice, but I believe Jesus paid that justice with His own life on the cross. I was vulnerable and weak, a foreigner to the promises of God, Ephesians chapter 2, but in Christ, God has given me all things and has made me strong. And then, as a child of the King, created to reflect His image, you love as He loved. You do justice, you love mercy, you walk humbly with your God. Let's pray that we would become such people. Lord, forgive us all these things that Micah levels as your charges, we stand guilty. Show us more and more inescapably how far short we have fallen, how, how vulnerable we would be to your judgment if it were not for Christ. Lead us into deeper praise and worship of the King who alone is King, who alone is the one before whose throne we fall down and give you what you deserve. Jesus, we praise you. Amen.